Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the tragic and devastating murder of Polly Class. Polly's case truly is one that shook me to my core, and I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about today's case. So, without giving anything away, and with that all being said, let's jump right on into it today. Polly Class was born on January 3rd of 1981 in Fairfax, California to her parents, Eve and Mark. Polly's parents ended up getting a divorce when she was only three years old, and even though her parents weren't great as a married couple, they still maintained a good co-parenting relationship for the sake of their daughter. Polly lived full-time with her mom, Eve, following the divorce in a town in California called Petaluma. Petaluma is an all-American small community about 30 miles north of San Francisco. At the time, it had a population of about 50,000 people and was known to be an incredibly safe community, a safe town, a town where doors were left unlocked. The town was described as all-American innocence when I was doing my research on it. This was a town where no one expected anything like this to ever happen happen. Now, Polly was living in Petaluma with her mom, Eve, who at the time had remarried and had a second daughter named Annie. Now, even though Polly was living with her mom after the divorce, she still maintained an incredibly close relationship with her dad, Mark. She would see Mark at least once a week and would talk to him on the phone daily. Mark and Polly had an incredibly tight-knit relationship. Polly was known as daddy's little girl. She had Mark wrapped around her finger and the two of them were incredibly close. Now, Polly is described by her loved ones as a girl who is sweet and charming. Polly was someone who everyone loved and she made friends incredibly quickly. She was very bright and had a little bit of sass to her in the best way possible. And in 1992, she was a new sixth grader at the school called Cherry Valley in Petaluma. When Polly began attending Cherry Valley School, it really did not take her very long to find friends. Everyone gravitated towards Polly. She was someone that everyone wanted to be around. All of her teachers loved her and she was an excellent student. Now, something that Polly was incredibly passionate about was the performing arts, specifically acting. She absolutely loved theater. She loved being on stage. She loved performing. And besides that, she also loved music, specifically piano and clarinet. So she was very passionate about arts. She was very talented and acting was her lifelong dream. Now, this all brings us to Friday, October 1st of 1993. Now, this particular day started out like any normal day for Polly. However, by midday, Polly got great news from her mom that she was going to be able to have a sleepover at her house that night with her two good friends, Kate and Jillian. Polly and her friends were incredibly excited to have a sleepover and a slumber party. They were in sixth grade. It was a Friday night. It was supposed to go perfectly. Now, around 6 p.m., Polly had the daily conversation that she did with her dad, Mark. She told Mark how her day at school was and that her friends were coming over for a slumber party, and she was really, really excited. They ended the phone call saying, I love you to each other before hanging up, not knowing that this would be the last time that the two of them would ever speak. Now, Jillian was the first to arrive at Polly's house for the slumber party, with Kate being dropped off shortly after. And for all things considered, this was your very stereotypical, normal girls' slumber party. They were playing games, they were laughing, they were playing with makeup, they were trying to figure out what they wanted to be in Halloween, which was only a few weeks away. 
As I mentioned earlier, Polly had a younger sister named Annie, and Annie and Polly shared a room together. However, because Polly was having her friends over, Eve put Annie with her in her room for the night. So Polly felt a sense of maturity, you know, having her room for the night, having her friends over. They were laughing, they were giggling, they were having a great time together. Now, at approximately 10.30 p.m., when Polly's mom had already gone to sleep for the night, the three girls were in Polly's room, all playing a board game. It was around this time that Polly got up to walk into the living room to grab the sleeping bags for her friends. However, when Polly got up and opened the door, all three girls were horrified when they came face to face with a grown man standing in the doorway holding a large knife. Now, initially, all three of the girls, Kate, Jillian, Polly, no one knew what to think. Initially, they almost thought it was a prank. That was until the man told them not to make a sound or he would kill them. He then ordered all three of the girls to lie face down on the ground, which they did. After lying down, this man continued by tying each girl's wrist and ankles with a white cloth and electrical wires. Now, while he was doing this, this man told these girls that he was only there for money, which at the time was very confusing to them because they were 12-year-old girls. They didn't know anything about any money. It was very confusing to hear. After saying that he was only there for the money, he then asked which one of the girls lived in the home. Now, after he said that, Polly identified herself as being the one who lived there, which is when he grabbed Polly and told Kate and Jillian to count to 1,000, and by the time they counted to 1,000, Polly would return. The man then took Polly by the arm and dragged her out the door and out of the house. Now, neither of the girls waited to count to a thousand, and as soon as the man took Polly out of the house, both of them were trying to untie themselves. Now, luckily, Jillian was actually a gymnast at the time, so she had the skill to be able to get herself out of her bindings, and when she did that, she helped untie Kate. Now, after both girls were untied, they ran into Eve's room to let her know what had just happened. Now, Eve's bedroom and Polly's bedroom were actually connected by a Jack and Jill bathroom, so they pretty much shared one big space. So Kate and Jillian ran into Eve's room and woke her up to tell her what had happened, and at first, Eve was also very confused. She didn't understand what was going on. She had actually taken sleeping pills earlier that night before going to bed because she was suffering from a migraine that night. So she was kind of groggy when the girls had woken her up. And it was very apparent when Eve made the 911 call to report Polly missing that she was confused. She sounded confused on the phone. When the operator was asking her questions, she really didn't know what to say. However, she was telling them that her daughter had been abducted. Now, it was also on the phone that Kate, one of Polly's friends, got on the phone with the operator to tell the operator her side of the story because obviously Kate had just relived it and she wasn't as groggy as Eve was at the time. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for 
happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. So Kate was able to give a very clear description of what had happened that night to the operator. She goes on to describe to the operator that the man who took Polly was a white male with a dark beard dressed in dark clothes between the ages of 30 to 40 years old. She also said that she had never seen this man before, that whoever came and took Polly was a complete stranger. Now, minutes after this 911 call, police were immediately on the scene. When they started investigating, they were able to see that there was no sign of forced entry, and there also didn't appear to be any ransacking of the house. Eve's purse was even still on the kitchen table with money inside of it. So whoever came into the home solely did so for the purpose of taking Polly. Police also found the cloths that were used to tie Kate and Jillian, as well as the electrical cords, which actually turned out to be Polly's Nintendo DS cords that were in the living room. Now, outside of the home, police started canvassing the neighborhood to see if anyone saw anything suspicious. Nearby to Polly's house, there was actually an apartment complex, and a tenant in the complex said that he remembered seeing a man walk into the back door of Eve's house at approximately 10.30 p.m. However, he didn't think anything of it because Eve often had friends over, and it didn't strike him as odd. Also, this wasn't a very bizarre time of night. This was 10.30 p.m. on a Friday. It is not rare for people to be awake or out and about or visiting friends at this time. It's the weekend. It's a Friday. So it was nothing that raised attention or suspicion to him. Now, a little less than two hours after Polly's disappearance at approximately 12.14 a.m., the police put out an alert It's something called an APB, which stands for All Points Bulletin. This APB was sent off to other officers in the area, telling them that there was a missing girl and the information they knew about the man who took her, the description of what he looked like. Now, when this alert was made, this alert was not made out to the media. It was not made out to the press. It was not made out to the public. It was strictly made out to the police in surrounding areas. Now, this itself has been a big point of contention in this case because certain people believe that the alert should have been made to the mass public. That way, everyone in the town would have known to be looking for Polly instead of just the police. Now, immediately, the FBI got involved in this case, and even the FBI were pretty stumped when it came to the facts of the case. This was not your typical middle-of-the-night child abduction. Like I mentioned, this was an abduction that took place at 10.30 p.m. on a Friday night, and not only that, it was while Polly's mom was still at home. Another layer that was added into this was the fact that this appeared to be a stranger abduction. According to Kate and Jillian, the man who took Polly was a stranger. It was someone that they did not know and someone that Polly did not recognize, which again, added another layer into this case because statistically speaking, only 25% of child abduction cases occur from a stranger. Most of them occur from a friend or a family member, someone who is known to the child. So for this to be a stranger abduction at a pretty popular time of night, it definitely wasn't the quote-unquote norm for child abductions. So when the FBI got involved in this case, this truly was an all-hands-on-deck situation. In the first 24 hours, they had search dogs, they had well over 50 agents who were constantly working on this case, and they were talking to anyone and everyone that they could to try and find Polly. And this is when the police learned something interesting. On the night that Polly disappeared, only about an hour after her abduction, there was a man who was reported to be 
trespassing on a woman's property. This woman is named Dana Jaffe. Now, Dana's property was not too far away from Polly lived. However, it wasn't close by any means. On the night of Polly's abduction, Dana had hired a babysitter to watch her daughter. When Dana had gotten home and the babysitter was free to go, she was driving down Dana's driveway. And just to give you a visual of this driveway, Dana's driveway was very, very steep. She lived on a hill, essentially. And so while the babysitter was driving down the driveway, she is shocked when a man jumps out at her in front of her car. Now, when the babysitter was looking at the man, she could immediately tell that he looked disheveled. He had sticks and twigs in his hair. His shirt looked all messed up. He looked completely out of it. However, he walked over to the babysitter's driver's side window of her car. And at the time, the babysitter had cracked her window just a slight bit, so much so that the man was able to put his fingers through the window. Now, when he did that, he had asked the babysitter to help him because apparently his car had gotten stuck in the mud. However, without saying anything, the babysitter immediately rolled up the window and raced down the rest of the driveway. When she got down to the bottom of the driveway is when she called Dana to let her know that there was a man who had trespassed on her property. Now, immediately, Dana got her and her daughter into the car while calling 911 to report that there was a man trespassing. She didn't know if this trespasser was trying to intrude into her house. She didn't know how dangerous the situation was, so she immediately called 911 to report it. Now, Dana herself and her daughter began driving down the driveway, and when they did so, she could not see the man. The man did not jump out at her. However, she did see the man's car, which did appear to be stuck in the mud. However, he was not in it. Now, to give you a description of Dana's property, like I said, she lived upon a hill. However, she also had a lot of woodlands surrounding her house. So when she was driving down the driveway and saw that the man was not in the car, that is when she started to get even more worried because she didn't know if the man had gone into the woods. She didn't know if the man was planning on going up to her house. So she immediately went down the driveway. And when she did so is when she met with police. Now she explained to police what had happened and that is when police as well as her drove back up the driveway and this time they did see this man. Now Dana says that when they drove up and saw the man he was very calmly just leaning up against his car almost as if he was waiting for them almost as if he knew that they were coming but he was very nonchalant very cool calm and collected almost to an ear point. Now, when Dana knew that the police had the situation under control, essentially, she then took her daughter and went back up to her home while the police were left with the man to figure out his situation. Shortly after, an officer went up to Dana's home to let her know that this man's car did get stuck in the mud and it just seemed like he was trying to figure out how to get it out. He didn't realize that this was a private property is what the officer are telling Dana from what this man had told them. Now, officers gave Dana the option of pressing charges for trespassing. However, Dana just said that she wanted this over and done with. She didn't want to press charges. She didn't want to deal with it again because had she pressed charges against him, he would have gone off to jail, but then would have had to come back to get his car is what officers told Dana. So when they explained it to her like that, she decided that she did not want anything to do with it and she did not want to see this man again. So she did not want to press charges. So because of that, the officers helped the man get his car out of the mud and watched him as he drove off and onto the highway. Now, when talking to this man, the only thing that police did was check to see if he had any outstanding warrants. That's the only thing that they did in terms of checking his criminal background, his criminal history. And when they looked, they saw that he had no outstanding criminal warrants, so they let him go. Now, the big thing that people really focus on with this particular part of this case is that at this point, 
police were not aware that Polly was missing. The APB that police had actually put out had not been broadcasted over police radio, so they did not know that there had been an abduction just an hour earlier, which makes you wonder and arises the question of if they did know, would they have conducted that interaction differently? Would it have changed the interaction? And ultimately, would it have changed the outcome? Now, at this point, it had been a little over 24 hours since Polly's abduction, and by now, the public and the town of Petaluma and the media were all made aware of Polly's disappearance, and it's safe to say that Petaluma was definitely on edge. Along with that, the press had been swarming the police department trying to get any information that they could, and this was something that Petaluma Police Department had never dealt with before. They had not dealt with a case of this caliber, and the community and the town really rallied together as well to help in any way that they could. They actually rented out a center. It was like this storefront that they had rented out and they had people with phones picking up for tip lines. They had people printing out different flyers to pass around. Everyone was coming together for Polly. Now, America's Most Wanted also featured Polly's case on their TV show to help reach a wider audience. And along with that, Winona Ryder, who, if you are unfamiliar, is a very famous actress. She is coincidentally also from Petaluma. And when she heard about Polly's case, she immediately flew home and did whatever she could to try and bring more attention and more coverage to the case. She was in Petaluma doing different press conferences and talking to a wide audience. She also put up $200,000 of her own money as the reward for Polly's safe return. So she was really trying to help in any way that she could and also really helped put more eyes on this case. Now, Polly's parents were also on the forefront when it came to the media and talking to the press, and specifically Mark. Mark was always the one who was doing interviews and talking to the media in that way. And some could argue, and some did argue, that this was actually not a good look for Mark because whenever Mark was in the media, the police would get a flood of tips about Mark saying that his behavior was weird, what he said to the media was weird. They were overanalyzing his behavior, which to be fair, you can't really blame them because a lot of times in these types of situations, sadly in child abductions, it's not uncommon for a parent to be responsible. However, this truly was a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because if Mark were to not talk to the media, the public would say that that was odd behavior and by him talking a lot to the media, the public also said that that was odd behavior. So again, damned if you do, damned if you don't. There was really no winning for Mark in that situation. Now, on another note, the police really honed in on Polly's friends, Kate and Jillian. The police, as well as some of the public, thought that it was possible that Kate and Jillian were complicit in Polly's disappearance. They had theorized that Polly herself, as well as Kate and Jillian, had all made a pact and conducted this entire scheme of Polly running away and made it look like she had been abducted. They had theorized that maybe Polly could have ran off with a boyfriend and Kate and Jillian were covering up for Polly. So there were a lot of question marks being thrown around when it came to Kate and Jillian. But mind you, these girls were only 12 years old. However, still they were polygraphed and questioned intensely by authorities. Now, when it came to their polygraph test results, Jillian passed the test. However, Kate's results came back as inconclusive. Now, Kate did appear to be visibly upset before she had taken the test, and during the test, she was also clutching on to her stuffed animal teddy bear, and police have come forward and said that both of those things could have impacted the results of the test. 
Now, as time went on and police were questioning the girls and questioning them, over time they realized that these girls had nothing to do with Polly's disappearance. And since then, they have actually come forward and said that they were too harsh on the girls. And if given the chance again, they would have treated them very, very differently since the beginning. So now getting back to the investigation, when the FBI got involved in the investigation, they used their advanced tools to try and get DNA or fingerprints from the crime scene, which was Polly's house, more specifically Polly's bedroom. Now, when they did that, they were able to pull an additional 48 prints. Now, one of those prints was a partial palm print in Polly's bedroom from an unknown male. And when the FBI received that print, they sent it off to the crime lab and awaited for those results. Now, something really unfortunate that happened in this case was in the very beginning of the investigation, Mark, Polly's father, actually received a phone call from a young girl who claimed to have been Polly and stated that she was with the kidnapper. Now, obviously, when Mark received this call, they were able to trace it and saw that it was coming from a town in Hayward. Now, Hayward is about an hour drive away from Petaluma, and police ended up contacting the FBI in Hayward and told them what was happening and told them to go to the address of where this phone call was being made out of. Now, when they did that, they burst through the doors of this home, and to their surprise, when they got in there, it appeared to be a very normal family just sitting in the living room, and sadly, when investigators began talking to the people in this house, they learned that the little girl in the home was actually dared by her friend to make that call and pretend to be Polly. So unfortunately, this whole thing was a hoax. And as you can imagine, this was just very disappointing for Polly's family and for the situation as a whole. So at this point, police go back to the drawing board and they're waiting for the results of the crime lab. And they were speaking to Kate and Jillian more and more, but not looking at them as suspects or possibly involved. This time they were looking at them to try and help solve the case, which is truly what they should have been doing all along. And when police were sitting down with Kate and Jillian and recounting the night over and over again, Kate and Jillian told the police that the composite sketch that police had initially come up with did not look like the man who took Polly. So because of this, police decide to bring in a new composite sketch artist. And this is a woman named Jeannie Boyland, and she is actually very very well-known and a well-renowned composite sketch artist. She is known for getting things incredibly accurate. So that is who police wanted on this case. So they call Jeannie in and Jeannie has a very warm nature to her, which automatically helped when talking to Kate and Jillian. They were able to open up with her more. Jeannie spent a lot of time with Kate and Jillian, well over 10 hours, not solely on Polly's case, just talking to them in general, trying to get them more comfortable with her because up until this point, they had really been harassed, for a lack of a better word, by the police. Now, after taking some time to speak with Kate and Jillian, Jeannie was able to come up with a new composite sketch. Based on this sketch, police now knew that they were looking for a man between the ages of 32 to 45 years old, someone who had thick, wavy, salt and pepper hair, a full beard, and a full face. The girls also said that this man had age lines on his forehead and around his eyes and claimed that he was approximately between five foot 10 and six foot three. Now, the FBI was also curating a behavioral profile. They thought that whoever did this was more than likely an experienced criminal who was comfortable taking risks like he did. Kidnapping Polly during a time of night where people were still out and about, as well as having the comfortability to walk into her house while her mom was home, showed that this man was willing to take a risk. They also felt like this was not an impulsive kidnapping, more so like someone had targeted Polly. So now this brings us to November 27th of 1991, so a little under two months since Polly's disappearance. Now, Dana Jaffe, who again is the woman who had the trespasser on her property the night of Polly's disappearance, Dana had gone on a walk 
with a girlfriend of hers on November 27th. Like I had mentioned in the beginning, she lived in a wooded area with some trails and she would often go on walks through this wooded area. So her and her friend are walking through the woods and when they did that, they discovered something unusual. Dana and her friend discovered a pile of clothing. This included a man's sweatshirt that had been turned inside out and was laying flat on the ground. It also included a pair of red tights that appeared to be kid-sized, along with white cloth fabric that had been knotted. And right next to the pile of clothes was a used condom as well. Now, when Dana made this discovery, she immediately contacted the sheriff's office to report what she had found, and they came out to investigate. Now, one of the investigators that went out to Dana's property was one of the same investigators that was at the scene at Polly's house right after she had been reported missing. Now, this man, this investigator, was sick to his stomach when he saw that knotted piece of cloth on Dana's property because he said that when he saw that cloth, he knew immediately that that was the same knotted fabric that was found at Polly's house. Now, when police showed up to Dana's house and she began talking with them, she reminded them that there was a man who had trespassed on her property just a little under two months prior. And when police went and looked back in the files, they found that that man was named Richard Allen Davis. Richard Allen Davis was born on June 2nd, 1954 in San Francisco to his parents, Robert and Evelyn, and he was the third out of five children, having two older brothers and two younger sisters. Growing up, both of Richard's parents were alcoholics, and the boys would be given abusive punishments like holding their hands onto a hot stove. There was also domestic violent disputes between his parents up until the age of nine when they finally separated and then officially divorced when he was 11. Now, Richard's sisters decided that they wanted to live with their dad, while Richard's brothers decided that they wanted to live with their mom. However, Richard himself decided that he too wanted to live with his dad and his sisters. Now, Robert wasn't exactly father of the year by any means. He was incredibly absent throughout Richard's life. And when he was around, he would take the time to physically abuse Richard. He would break his jaw. He would slam him into walls. He was very, very abusive towards Richard. Now, Robert actually remarried twice and Richard despised both of his stepmothers. Now, Richard's criminal record actually began when he was only 12 years years old after he had been put on probation for burglary and forgery and then again when he was 15 for burglary a second time. Now, Richard dropped out of school his sophomore year of high school, and when he was 17, he got arrested for stealing a motorcycle. This time, after his arrest, the judge told Richard that he could either go to juvie or the army, and Richard chose the army. However, he got discharged 13 months later. Now, immediately when police pull up Richard's file after speaking with Dana, they notice intense similarities between the composite sketch that Jeannie had drawn and Richard himself. The forehead lines, the salt and pepper thick hair, all of it. And not only that, the behavioral profile checked out as well because Richard had a laundry list of a rap sheet. Now, at the time of Polly's disappearance, Richard had been released off of parole only six months prior for a previous kidnapping charge. In fact, Richard had had multiple previous kidnapping charges on his rap sheet. And before that, on October 12th of 1973, when Richard was only 19 years old, he had attended a house party of a woman named Marlene Voris, who was only 18 years old. That same night, Marlene was found with a gunshot wound to her head and seven suicide notes on the scene. Now, the police initially concluded that Marlene's cause of death was suicide. However, her friends 
The people who knew Marlene knew that this was a murder. They truly felt like Marlene would not commit suicide and that foul play had to be involved. And more than that, they even named Richard to be who they thought was responsible. Now, Richard was never arrested for the murder. However, he did tell his psychiatrist that it deeply affected him, that Marlene's death deeply affected him and that he would consistently hear Marlene's voice in his head. He was arrested multiple more times after this for a string of burglaries and was sentenced to six months to 15 years in prison. However, was released on parole. Now, the cycle of Richard being arrested was exactly that. It was a cycle. He would be released for his last charge. He would commit another crime. He would be thrown back in jail and he would be released six months to a year later. This was a constant cycle that was happening for Richard. And again, these were not petty theft crimes. These were crimes of assault, of kidnapping. However, each and every time, Richard would find his way out of prison. So why he was released will forever be a mystery. Now, getting back to the forensics of it all, sure enough, the evidence showed that the white cloth that was found on Dana's property matched and was exactly the same white cloth that was found in Polly's bedroom. Police even said that it was a puzzle piece. That's how they described it. When they took the cloth from Dana's property and matched it with the one from Polly's bedroom, it matched up perfectly. Now, along with that, the partial palm print that was found in Polly's bedroom also came back as a DNA match to Richard Allen Davis. So at this point, it was time to make an arrest and police brought out all the works. They brought out three different SWAT teams. They brought out snipers and dogs and everything, and they were prepared to make it this giant scene. Now they found out that Richard was living with a relative at the time on the Coyote Valley Reservation, which was about an hour and a half away from Petaluma. So when they learned that, all of the team had gone out to this reservation and raided this house. However, to their frustration, Richard was nowhere to be found. Now, luckily, the police did put certain officers on perimeter control. That way they had a controlled area. And it was because of that, that one of the officers on the perimeter control was able to radio in to the team that had done the raid that they were pretty sure that they had Richard. Now, as you can imagine, the detectives were pretty confused when they first heard this. However, they ran over to the perimeter control officer, and that is when they saw Richard Allen Davis in his van. So the big raid of running into the house with three SWAT teams, that was all called off, and they found Richard in his van driving towards the house. However, obviously, because of perimeter control, he had to stop by one of the officers. Now, when police got to Richard, they immediately took him out of the car and they arrested him for parole violations at first. So they did not arrest him for the kidnapping and they brought him down to the police department for further questioning. Now, at first, Richard claimed that he had absolutely nothing to do with Polly's disappearance. He claimed he didn't know who Polly was, wasn't there at the time, didn't know anything. However, here is where Richard slipped up. When talking to police, he told them that he had, quote, killed people like that in prison. Now, what Richard is referring to here is he is saying that he himself has killed child molesters in prison. Now, this threw police off because up until this point, no one had mentioned any sexual assault, any child molestation. Richard slipped up there. And when he did that, it gave police a new angle and it gave them leverage. Now, when Richard realized what he did, he definitely got more defensive and more aggravated. And that is when he invoked his right to an attorney. Attorney. Now, you might be wondering if Richard knew Polly, if he knew Mark, if he knew Eve, and the answer to that is no. When Mark and Eve were shown the picture of Richard Allen Davis, they claimed that they had never seen him before. 
Now, Kate and Jillian were also brought in to see if they could pick Richard out of a lineup. However, neither of them were able to positively identify Richard. Now, at this point, police thought that they were at a little bit of a roadblock because they thought that Richard was not going to talk to them. That was until their surprise when the jail that Richard was being held at called police and told them that Richard wanted to speak to them. Now, it should be noted that there was a reason that Richard wanted to speak with them. When the media got wind that Richard was arrested for Polly's disappearance, and it was also made public that the partial palm print was linked back to Richard, one of Richard's previous employers had actually read this in the news, and he drove over to the jail where Richard was staying and told Richard about this new piece of information, because up until that point, Richard did not know that they had that on him. Now, why that information was made public, I'm not entirely sure. However, this previous employer of Richard saw this, saw that Richard was arrested for this, and then went and told him. And once Richard knew this, that's when he was like, okay, I'll talk to you. Now, regardless, the police just wanted to talk to him. So they were happy when they'd heard that Richard wanted to sit down with them for a second time without an attorney. And the first question they ask when sitting down with Richard is, is she alive? Obviously referring to Polly. And that is when Richard Allen Davis said no. Now, Richard went on to say that on the night of the disappearance, he was in Petaluma to visit his mom. He had driven downtown and stopped at a 7-Eleven to grab a beer, then went to a nearby park where he drank that beer, as well as smoked a PCP cigarette. For those who don't know, PCP is also called angel dust, and it is a powerful hallucinogenic that can alter your memory. Richard claims that after he smoked the cigarette, he doesn't have the best memory, but remembers that he ended up in Polly's house and claimed to have gone through a window in the front of her house before entering her bedroom. He remembered telling all three girls to lie down before taking Polly. He then claimed that he drove off with Polly in the front seat and turned down a road, the same road of Dana Jaffe's property. He claimed that once he pulled off onto the property, his car got stuck, so he made Polly get out of the car and sit on the embankment while he tried to get the car out, which is when he came in contact with the babysitter. Richard claims that after seeing the babysitter, he then took Polly to a gas station where Polly asked to use the bathroom. When Polly came back was when Richard claims he strangled her to death with a cloth and that is how she died. So that is the story that Richard initially tells police. That's what he says happened. And as you can imagine, police were not buying that story one bit. That story does not even make sense. Police could tell that there were so many details that were missing from that story and that there was much more to this than that. Police also had a hard time believing that Polly was still alive at the time that the babysitter drove down the driveway. They believe that Polly would have made some sort of noise or tried to escape at that point because she would have had a good chunk of time where she would have been able to do that, which is also why the police felt like Richard was leaving out a good chunk of detail. Now, from a body language standpoint and from a psychological standpoint, a lot of the experts who have reviewed the footage of this interrogation and have listened to the wording and the verbiage that Richard uses, they claim that Richard is intentionally trying to forget or claiming that he forgets certain details, certain key details, saying that he doesn't remember being very vague because he's trying to distance himself from the crime. Now, when it comes to the police, they truthfully believe that Richard had been stalking Polly for months leading up to the murder. They believe that Richard prepared for Polly's abduction because after all, when Richard went into the house and went into Polly's room, he specifically asked which one of the girls lived there and then took the one that did. That seems intentional. There's intention behind that because if he wanted to just kidnap one of them and it didn't matter who, then why even ask that? 
Police also theorized that on the night of the disappearance, Richard drove Polly around trying to find areas where he would go undetected that police wouldn't be. And that is when he stumbled across Dana's property, not fully realizing that someone lived on the top of the hill and he just saw the wooded area and figured that this would be a great spot to go undetected. Police believe that Richard forced Polly out of the car and into the woods where he sexually assaulted her and strangled her to death. Now, Richard has never admitted to sexually assaulting Polly, but police believe that the reason for that is because child molesters definitely get treated a certain way in prison and it's not a good one. Police believe that Polly had already been murdered by the time that authorities responded to Dana's trespassing call. And they also believe that Richard left her body in the woods and drove off because remember, police followed him to the highway. So obviously he didn't have Polly's body in the car at that point, but they believe that he waited just the right amount of time before turning back around, going back to Dana's property, getting Polly's body and driving off in the car with her. Now, despite all of this, despite all of the interrogations, all of the questioning up until this point, police still did not have Polly's remains. However, during this second interrogation with Richard, they had asked Richard where Polly was, what he did with her. And that is when he told them that he had left Polly's body in a town called Cloverdale. Now, Cloverdale is just about an hour away from Petaluma, a little bit under that. And Richard claimed that Polly was right outside of Cloverdale, about a half a mile off of the road. Richard even claimed that he left Polly's body in a spot where she could have been found and said, quote, he was surprised no one did it yet. Now, police say that while they were recovering Polly's body with Richard there, while police are surrounding Polly, while they are uncovering her body, Richard couldn't have less of a care in the world. He was actually leaning up against the car, smoking a cigarette while police were uncovering Polly Class's body. And after an autopsy was performed on Polly, it was confirmed that her official cause of death was strangulation. Now, in terms of the sexual assault, when Polly's body was discovered, she was already too far past in the decomposition phase to be able to determine whether or not she was sexually assaulted. However, it should be noted that when she was found, when her body was recovered, she was found with her skirt pulled up. Now, you can only try to imagine the devastation that Polly's family experienced when they learned that she had been found deceased. Now, the turnout for Polly's funeral was unlike anything anyone was ever expecting to see. The large church didn't even fit everyone who showed up. Now, this case did go to trial because Richard pled not guilty. However, it did not take long for the jury to decide that Richard was in fact guilty of first-degree murder with special circumstances, including burglary, robbery, kidnapping, and an attempted lewd act upon a child under the age of 14. Now, wildly enough, when this guilty verdict was read, Richard himself actually turned around to face Polly's family, as well as the camera that was in the room, for the media, and when he turned around, he flipped off with both fingers, flipped off the camera and Polly's family. Now that was just for the verdict, but when it came to the actual sentencing itself, Richard was allowed to give a statement, which of course he did. And it was in this statement that Richard did something that was so unbelievably disgusting and vile and evil, truly evil. And I say unbelievably, but also it's Richard Allen Davis. So it slightly is believable that he would do something so incredibly, I don't even have, there's no words to describe what he did. I'm going to tell you. While he was making a statement, Richard claimed, quote, the main reason that I know I did not attempt any lewd act on a child is because of a statement the young girl made to me while I was walking her out to the embankment. 
just don't do me like my dad, end quote. Now, basically what Richard is doing here is something that is so incredibly evil and vile. What Richard is doing is alluding to the fact that Polly, in her final moments of life before Richard murdered her, asked Richard not to assault her the way her dad does. Now, as you can imagine, when this happened, there was an immediate uproar in the courtroom and Mark himself absolutely lost it understandably so he got up he like he physically reacted to this and he was escorted out of the courtroom by police and everyone knew like there was not a question in anyone's mind when Richard made this statement that he purely did it out of malice he purely did it to twist the knife for mark to just do one more thing because what he had already done just wasn't enough he needed to do that now all in all richard allen davis was sentenced to death and he is currently sitting on death row today so that is the case of polly class however for the aftermath of this case this is what Polly's legacy has done. Now, California has passed the three strikes law after Polly's case, and this states that any offender who has three felonies will be sentenced to 25 years to life. This is for those repeat offenders, those repeat criminals, and those cyclers, like we were mentioning earlier with Richard. He would commit a felony offense and then just get a slap on the wrist and then be released again. Felony offense, slap on the wrist, get released again. And this was a cycle for him. So this three strikes law insisted that whoever had any three felony charges be put in jail for 25 years to life and this was signed into law on march 8th of 1994. now polly's dad had also started the polly class foundation to prolong the legacy of his daughter and he also opened up a community theater called the polly class community theater in honor of polly who obviously loved 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 acting and performing arts and theater and all of those things however the most heartbreaking thing that i read in my research in regards to Mark when talking about Polly's legacy is that, quote, I think her legacy is strong. I do, but I'd still trade it for a hug, end quote. And if that does not just rip your heart out, I don't know what will, but that, you guys, is the case of Polly Class, and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this case. Again, Polly's case is one that is so horrifying because it is everyone's biggest fear. It is that stranger abduction and brutal murder. And it's absolutely horrific what happened to her. So again, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit the subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post them weekly here on Wednesdays and you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.